Uh, good morning. It is, it is really great to have uh, Will Bankston with us. I mean, congratulations on ordination. That is amazing. Um, and I'm just so thankful to get to know that he's going to be pastoring this church and just to, to know that our work in the kingdom gets to overlap. That's a great joy to me. Uh, my name is Matt. Again, if I haven't met you, I am the interim pastor here. And I'm excited to get to preach on Philippians 3 this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come together this morning, both in person and through our screens, because we are longing for a word from you. We want to hear you speak to us. Um, We know that when you speak to us, uh, it does something. It does something good in our lives and good in the world. And so, Lord, my prayer is that my own words would in no way tangle up what you're trying to say to us, that I wouldn't bring confusion to what is clear, and that you would speak to me and speak to your people for our good and the good of others. Give us ears to listen. In your name, amen. So who uh, uh, belongs at this church? At One Ancient Hope. And how is it that they come to belong? Right, who, who belongs here? And think about that for a moment. According to you, Who should be allowed to be a part of this church and who shouldn't? And how can you tell those two groups apart? Is it the way they dress? Is it the way they talk? Are they able to use Christian lingo? Or perhaps they use too much Christian lingo, so you'd rather they didn't belong here? Is it where they live? I mean, can we really be a church for Iowa City if we have people from North Liberty coming here? Is it the car they drive or the bumper sticker that's on the car they drive? Who is it? Who belongs here? And then do you feel like you belong here? Really? What if you changed something about yourself? What if you had more money, you know, or more education, or maybe you need to make less money or somehow have less education and then you'd feel like you belonged? Or what if you were a native Iowan, right? A born and bred Hawkeye, then you'd belong. Or what if you were from somewhere more, I don't know, exotic, um, then maybe you would feel like you belong, right? It's, it's actually the people who come here from other places to go to the university. This church seems to be more for them. Do you feel like you belong here? Uh, take hold of that feeling if you do. And if you don't, take hold of that feeling and take it into this sermon. So in this letter of the Philippians, as I've been saying, Paul, he addresses the church Uh, with this rhythm of sort of external, internal, 
external, internal. In regards to the sort of persecution, opposition, suffering that the church is feeling. And he knows that the, even the external persecution or opposition will lead to internal issues and internal division. And the internal division will eventually affect their external witness. And it will compromise their ability to be a light to the Philippian community. Again, Philippi was a Roman colony, had a large population of retired Roman soldiers. So the church there would have received persecution uh, because of their way of life. It was in opposition to the Roman way of life. So they would have received physical persecution, intellectual persecution. And Paul is concerned that this external opposition And he's concerned about that particularly in chapter 1, where we read about it. And he compares himself being in in prison, being in chains, to what some of the Philippians are going through. And then in chapter 2, he addresses some of the internal division. The fighting and grumbling and gossip that's threatening to tear the community apart. What Paul wants is ultimately to see the Philippian Christians view this opposition, both externally and internally, as a means of grace, as an avenue for spiritual formation, as an opportunity to be conformed into the image of Christ. And therefore, all this opposition and persecution is not actually meant to quench joy, but to open us up to receive more of it. It's this idea that we could be even more full of joy than we currently are. And now we're in chapter 3, and he's addressing external again. So he went external, internal. Now we're back to external opposition. And this time it's from certain Jewish Christians who are telling the Gentile, which is non-Jewish Christians, that they must be circumcised to truly belong to the family of God. And this is threatening to divide the community. And Paul will have none of it. Some of his sharpest language is in this chapter. The more um, conservative Jewish Christians, and when I say conservative, don't read into any of our political landscape today. This is what's going on there. They're literally more conservative in what the laws that they're following. These more conservative Jewish Christians are introducing division into the church by demanding that Gentile Christians become like them. Okay, so that's kind of the the background of this chapter. So anything we read has to do with that. And the way Paul addresses this is again by appealing to this Christ poem that's found in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is sort of the center of gravity that I'm saying the whole book of Philippians revolves around. And I'll read it again this time. 2, 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This same pattern we saw last week, and we'll see again in the way Paul uh, sort of talks to these Jewish Christians. It's this pattern of kind of up, down, and then further up. You could say full, empty, fuller. You could say also uh, that Paul's talking about status or equality with God for Jesus, which drops down to emptied out servanthood and then comes even higher to exaltation. Jesus is then exalted above every name. Everyone bows to him. Paul says that this pattern is the mindset that we are to have in order to see unity in the church. In our relationships with one another, we must be willing to let go of our status and the privileges that come with it in order to become a servant to all. Knowing that in serving others, God fills us with joy. You know, you could imagine sitting in a restaurant. I mean, maybe you could. Maybe it's been a really long time since you've been in one. But try and think back, sitting in a restaurant. Let's say you have a glass of the house red, okay? Maybe it was $7. I'm not sure. But you have it there. And the server comes up, and he pops open a bottle of the finest vintage Cabernet. It's aged. It's more than you could afford. But you only have one glass. You kind of got to empty it out, and that server is happy to fill you up, even beyond the standard six-ounce pour, with the good stuff. That's a bit of the pattern. Like Paul, you'd probably pour it out and be filled. And last week, Paul showed this through this idea of the drink offering, which we explored. Pouring oneself out as a sacrifice. Eugene Peterson says this about Philippians. He says, it is this spilling out quality of Christ's life that accounts for the happiness of Christians. For joy is life in excess, the overflow of what cannot be contained within any one person. So that same pattern comes up in our text today as well. And here's how Paul begins chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In case you thought he was talking about anything else, it's joy again. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. And he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And then the language kind of gets intense. It's kind of like, why is he so stark? It's so off-putting. Why did you get there so fast? But the idea, I think, is that Joy actually must be defended. It's far too easy to lose or have it stolen. So Paul quickly jumps to this biting attack 
on those threatening to steal the joy and unity of the church. And Paul's language is is much more shocking and pointed than it comes off to us 2,000 years later. So I want to look at the three parts of this this sentence in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out for the dogs. Where does this language come from? Well, Paul's actually taking over rhetoric from his opponents and throwing it back at them. Right? The term dogs could sometimes be used by Jews to disparage Gentiles in, in the ancient Near East. In the Gospel of Matthew, G- Jesus even calls a Gentile Canaanite woman who wants her daughter healed. He says, no, I've, I haven't come for the dogs. He's speaking to her as a Gentile. Um, and her faith, you know, if you know the story, it, it actually is able to heal her and her daughter. It's really this beautiful story. But he calls her a dog. So the thought is that maybe in Philippi, some of these Jewish Christians are still referring to Gentile converts as dogs. And for diehard traditionalists, the difference between Jews and Gentiles was literally clean and unclean. Not just like a little dirty unclean, like unclean like a dog. Calling someone a dog was to imply uncleanliness before God. So some Jewish Christians were saying that without submitting to circumcision, even Gentile Christians, even those who have trusted in Jesus, been baptized, would still be unclean. So Paul reverses it and says, no, you're dogs. He tells the Philippian church to look out for the unclean who call themselves clean. Then he says, look out for the evildoers. Again, these are Jewish Christians who are telling the Gentile Christians that they have to follow the Jewish law. Now, the Jewish law is meant to make people good, just, ethical, holy, right? This is like, yeah, calling someone who's meant to enforce a good law, you're actually creating evil. It's supposed to lead to the pursuit of the good life. The opposite of evil. Yet, Paul calls those who are trying to force the law on these new converts evildoers. Again, he reverses their language. You think you're going to make these Gentiles good with the law, but you're actually doing evil. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And it's this final part of the sentence that clues us in on exactly what part of the law these Jewish Christians are trying to require of the Gentile Christians. And it's circumcision. Why would they care so much about circumcision? Well, for men, this is the literal marker of belonging to the people of God. So if I was to ask that same question that I asked you, who belongs here in a Jewish synagogue in ancient Near East, they would say, the circumcised. You, can, you probably shouldn't look, but you can literally see it. They are who belong. 
Our Old Testament lesson in Genesis 17 says that this marker of circumcision will be for all time. And verse 14 reads, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Literally, if their flesh isn't cut off, they will be. The Jewish Christians weren't, they weren't actually evil. They weren't trying to create harm for the Gentile Christians. They were trying to make sure that these people weren't cut off from the community of God. They wanted to help them truly belong. We want you to belong, but to belong, you must become like us. The zealous Jewish Christians wanted to subject the Gentile believers to the blade of circumcision. The latter are told that otherwise they will be cut off from God's people, not sharing in the blessings of the covenant. They will be excluded by reason of impurity. And this is a problem for Paul. It's a problem because they are seeing circumcision as a boundary marker, as a salvific status symbol. It's embarrassing for these Jewish Christians to be in community with uncircumcised Gentile Christians. I mean, what will the other Jews think of us if they see us leave temple with a dog, with an uncircumcised Gentile? You see, this view threatens to create different classes of Christians, which will be a nightmare for any chance of unity in the church. So Paul replies sarcastically by mutilating the term circumcision even in the Greek. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The Greek word for circumcision is peritome, literally meaning to cut around. Okay? You can see how it has to do with purity and removing all that's impure or doesn't belong. It's about cutting around what doesn't belong, what's left is pure and right and good. Here, though, Paul uses the word katatome, which literally means cutting to pieces, hence mutilate. Paul is saying, what you are trying to purify, you are destroying. He's warning the Philippian church, these zealous Jewish Christians may say to you that they're going to purify the church, but in reality, they will mangle it. Just to be clear. Okay. Paul is accusing his opponents of botching the job of circumcision so badly that the victim is left with mutilated genitalia. That's what he's getting at. It's, it's very stark. It's very in your face, right? There's strong shock value in the apostles' words here. And I'm, I, I'm not trying to be crass with any of this stuff. I'm just trying to present the text as best I can. Then he says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision. We, the Philippian church, which was made up mostly of Gentile, but also of some Jewish Christians, together, we, we are the circumcision. Who are we? We are the ones who worship or serve by the Spirit of God 
and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul isn't saying circumcision doesn't matter or that the covenant of Genesis 17 is void. But he is saying that it's transformed. It's not uh, a circumcision of the flesh. It becomes a circumcision of the heart that's performed by the Spirit in the power of Christ. Now, this wouldn't have been unheard of, actually, to the Jewish, uh, even before the Jewish Christians, to the Jews, because this exists a bit in the Old Testament. As early as Deuteronomy 10.16, it says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. And foretold by the prophet Jeremiah, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. It's still the imagery and concept of circumcision, of something being removed, of space being made, of our heart of stone becoming by the Spirit a heart of flesh that then can be cut open and filled with God. (coughs) Excuse me. So Paul says, we are the circumcision, put no confidence in the flesh. And then he gives his own story. He narrows in on himself. He narrows in on this idea of status, this first part of the pattern. Again, he's bringing back that poem from Philippians 2. Remember, status, servanthood, exaltation, full, empty, fuller. It's a recognition of what you have, an intentional pouring out of it, and then a filling with the very glory and presence of God. Paul wants the zealous Jewish Christians who seemed to be concerned with their status and the status of their new Gentile family members to see the lack of value in these things in relation to God. So he plays their game. And he shows his status. He has what sociologists today would call ascribed status, achieved status, and even master status. Ascribed status is that which is assigned to you involuntarily, usually by birth. You didn't earn or choose this. Uh, but they're the cards you've been dealt, right? Wraith, ethnicity, and the social class of our parents are examples of ascribed statuses. Don't get to choose them, but there they are. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, I'm sure Paul as an infant did not choose this. Of the people of Israel, Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is his birthright. It's ascribed to him. But he also has achieved status. That's what you actually accomplish, and it reflects our own work and effort. Paul says, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he held and followed the law to a higher degree than others by choice. Verse 6, as to zeal, 
I was even a persecutor of the church. So he decided, I'm not just going to be, you know, a Jew who sort of follows the law. I'm going to go up and above it, and I'm going to destroy those who are an enemy of the church. He had high ascribed status. And then master status is a status that has exceptional importance for social identity, often shaping a person's entire life. It often requires a combination of ascribed and achieved status to really work well. And here Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As far as external qualifiers could go in the Jewish world, Paul is flawless. But it's not enough. He has experienced all this sort of status, all this fullness, and it wasn't enough. He was lacking before God, which meant, of course, he was lacking before others before himself, which meant he was unable to truly or fully love them, again, making true community impossible. I mean, think about what we say every week in our service. We, ha- we have this time of confession and then this time of, of absolution, of truth spoken over us, the truth of our forgiveness in Christ, And then we say this to one another. Since God has forgiven us in Christ, let us forgive one another. The peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all and also with you. That peace, that communal peace, is only possible because of the peace with God. And so within the community at Philippi, there are some who are saying, in order to fully receive that peace of God, you need to do another thing. You must be circumcised in the flesh. If there are people in this church who are saying, in order to receive the peace of God, you must do something beyond receiving Christ, it's going to create disunity in our church. It's going to wreak havoc. This is why Paul is so passionate about this. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. And we see the pattern beginning, right? He was full of status, blameless. Loss, descent. For Paul to count these things as loss, it means that there was actual loss in his life when he came to Christ. I think these verses become so familiar to us that we just think, Oh, he's just using the word loss and gain, and it's kind of just like a spreadsheet. There's actual loss in his life, sacrifice, suffering, because of turning to Christ. He says he suffered the loss of all things, and he doesn't specify all that this entailed, but it may have included being disinherited by his family, which would have meant a corresponding loss in property, Alienation from friends, teachers, associates. Certainly it would have meant his loss of status in Judaism at points that were clearly previously meaningful and dear to him. He was willing to stone 
others for how much meaning he found in his Jewish status. So all in all, he has lost religious advantages, status, material benefits, honor, and comforts. And to count this as loss is to recognize an emptying taking place. Paul gives of his status and privilege, counting it all loss. Verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In order that I may gain Christ. Do you see the pattern again? Full, empty, fuller. Now he has Christ. Status, servanthood, exaltation. And Paul counts it all as rubbish in the translation that was read today. Or what the King James Version, you know, the poetic, reverent, old English, beautiful. It says, I count it all as dung. The Greek word here is skabala. It can mean either human excrement or trash. Uh, A lot of the Greek scholars that I was able to get in touch with this week, just in their books, not talking to them, but uh, they argue that the closest equivalent in our modern-day English is a four-letter word that starts with S. And the idea is this. The idea is that it's what is left behind. So whether it's trash or human excrement, it's something that is of no value at all. It's, it's left behind after something happens, which is playing more crassly with the whole emptied out theme. Paul is saying that to see his status markers as a means of knowing Christ is not only worthless like crass, like trash, I mean, it's revulsive like excrement. Think about food for a moment here. I love to talk about food. The only thing I love more than talking about food is eating food, of course. But eating a good meal is a wonderful experience, right? It's a delightful experience. There's joy in the flavor and the taste and the texture and the smells in the creativity of the chef. In fact, a meal is usually had with friends or family. It usually builds community, strengthens relationships. It's wonderful. And a good meal will also nourish us. We'll have some protein, carbohydrates, some vitamins and minerals, energy to go about our day. It's a wonderful thing. Yet once a meal has served its purposes, the remains end up in the toilet. Imagine wanting more out of the meal than it had to offer. That would be like reaching into the toilet, thinking there's any worth to what your body has emptied out. It's crass, I know, but it's the language Paul is using. When we expect more out of something than it was meant to give, that's how a good thing becomes vile. 
like dogs going back to their vomit. It was meant to be expelled and be done with. The fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, says this about our text today. He says, is not the world good? Is not the present life good? But if they draw me away from Christ, I count these things loss. Why? For the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. For when the sun, S-U-N, has appeared, it is loss to sit by a candle so that the loss comes by comparison, by the superiority of the other. If we think any aspect of our lives, any status or success, whether we achieved it or were born into it, if we think it can make us right with God, we've abused the usefulness of it, and it becomes revulsive. We've made a good thing vile. In terms of atoning us a God, atoning us to God, making us one with God, atonement, uniting us with him. In terms of atoning us to God, these things are nothing but skibala, and they belong in the sewer. If you think something you have done or were born into has saved you, you belittle the death of Christ and threaten the possibility of true community because there's something you were able to do, either by your own doing or by the favor of being born some way, that another is not able to do. And so you destroy the community, the possibility of reconciliation with God and other. Paul says, in closing, in a long but powerful sentence, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may retain the resurrection from the dead. Something that occurs many, many times in Philippians is this phrase, in Christ. And here Paul is saying this very clearly. He wants to gain Christ and be found in him. Let me just tell you that the only way we will ever be able to make any choice to empty ourselves of any status or privilege or anything like that, the only way we will be able to become the kind of people with open hands is if we realize the secure grasp that we have in him right? Christ is holding us securely so that we can open up our hands and empty that which needs to be empty. We can let go because he does not. We need to hear that. 
One scholar says that to know Christ is to taste the promised future by power of his resurrection. But to taste it in the sufferings of our present time. By his resurrection, the crucified Christ is made the world's contemporary in the midst of suffering. He is present in power to the faithful as a comfort in every affliction. To know Christ is to taste the promised future. This morning, as we partake in communion, we share in the sufferings of Christ like Paul, becoming like him in his death, so we may also attain the resurrection from the dead. This table, by the way, is on the floor. It's a level table because all those in Christ come forward to receive. You don't have to ascend these steps to come up here and get it by doing something else. It's here. It is for all who proclaim faith in Jesus. That's it. That's all that's required. This morning, we have the joy of sharing the cup and bread with Jesus. This morning, we are reminded of Christ's offering on the cross for us. We also remember that this meal is not just a sharing with Christ, but it is a sharing with one another. It is the primary act by which we are made a family, a community, a people of God for the sake of the world.